Welcome to the Maps Canada podcast. Today we'll be sharing a special bonus episode for those of you who enjoyed our first episode on the history of psychedelics in Canada. And if you haven't yet listened to our first history episode, I encourage you to check that out as you may get more out of today's conversation. Today, we're releasing an excerpt from our interview with Canadian lawyer turned journalist historian Ross Crockford. Ross has first-hand experience with Canada's psychedelic history, as he's interviewed a number of key players that were mentioned in our first history episode. Ross was the editor of Monday Magazine, an alternative weekly paper in Victoria, BC. It was during his work as an editor that he discovered the psychedelics research conducted by Abram Hoffer. He actually went on to interview Hoffer himself, as well as several of his patients, along with many other early psychedelic pioneers, including people like Rick Doblin and Stan Groff. Ross has over two decades of experience researching Canada's relationship with psychedelics. We owe him a great deal of thanks for making our first history episode a great success. And now, without further ado, I bring you Ross Crockford. I'm here with Ross Crockford. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are very welcome. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Could you tell us, um, just tell us for those who don't know you or haven't read any of your work, um, what has your career been like? I trained as a lawyer in Vancouver, but had always been interested in writing. And uh, I took a break from uh, practicing law in 1990 and went to uh, Czechoslovakia which at that time had just opened up uh, because right after the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. And I, I loved living there so much because it was such a, um, a dynamic place. You know, it was undergoing sort of very rapid changes and there was lots of stuff to write about. And so I uh, started writing seriously uh, for pay for newspapers when I was living in Europe and kind of abandoned the practice of law <laughs> and uh, and then just kept writing about, uh, you know, I mean, originally what was going on in Czechoslovakia, but then I came back to Vancouver in 1994 and then just continued to write about things that intrigued me uh, at that time. And there was a The good thing, or I was lucky in the sense that uh, at the time there was a lot of uh, sort of alternative newspapers, uh, alternative weeklies in particular, like uh, Now Magazine in Toronto or the Georgia Strait in Vancouver. And and they were very successful. They were, uh, you know, big, thick publications and they had money. And so they would pay for long form journalism. You could uh, really write sort of big, long stories about things to sort of ex- really explore issues rather than just sort of talking about what happened in the news yesterday. And that's mm. that's the stuff that I really like. And so I worked in for some of these newspapers, came to Victoria and uh, became the editor of a publication uh, here called Monday Magazine uh, that was also an alternative weekly. And while I was at uh, Monday Magazine, there was a, a guy who wrote quite regularly as a freelancer about all sorts of very esoteric uh, subjects. And we talked about, you know, our various uh, personal experiences and things like this. And he and he mentioned to me that uh, there was this uh, doctor in Victoria who had a very colorful history. And I, my, I, I come from a medical family. My father's a physician and so is my brother. 
And uh, he said that this this guy was a psychiatrist who had used uh, uh, LSD to treat alcoholism in Saskatchewan in the 1950s. And I I had never I had not heard anything about this, uh, and it just seemed incredible to me and and also kind of impossible like how how would you use <laughs> a powerful it makes no sense psychedelic <laughs> drug to stop someone from drinking booze it just seemed like a, a very strange uh, idea so i went to i went to interview him uh, abram hoffer and uh, we talked at, at uh, great length and that was sort of my introduction to the whole world i realized that there was this kind of vast unknown history in the 1980s you know when ronald reagan became president of the united states there was this real sort of step up of what was known as and still is known as the war on drugs and it was this idea that that basically all illegal drugs are completely evil and must be stopped and so uh, the the whole prehistory of of the use of psychedelics in medicine really just kind of disappeared. No one wanted to be associated with it. No one wanted to talk about it. Uh, all of the, the the physicians who were still alive were sort of um, hesitant. They didn't want to get in trouble with the police, obviously, and they were sort of afraid that even the association. Uh, with these drugs in their past would create trouble so it was it was sort of difficult to find out you know anything about this history and and the the first uh of course book that really kind of cracked this open was was uh martin lee and bruce schlain's um acid dreams which came out i think in 1986 which really sort of provided like a the the first kind of insight into that stuff um that there was this alternative history because the other part of it that that uh, people had heard or was sort of common knowledge, especially in Canada, uh, was about the the MK Ultra experiments right. in Montreal, and that that sort of uh, confirmed the idea to a lot of people that that uh, LSD and psychedelics generally were just like dangerous, dangerous drugs mm. used to nothing sort of, good to be had there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that there was so to to hear about this this other history that the drugs had actually been successfully used to provide people with a, a beneficial experience was something that, you know, I certainly hadn't heard of and most people hadn't heard of. So I said, well, there's a, that's a really interesting story. Let's, uh, let's find out more about that. And I just sort of <laughs> kept digging further and further and further into it um, and meeting more and more of the people uh, who were still alive were part of that history. So that's, that's why I, that was your introduction. Yeah, that was the introduction. So when was it that you had met, um, Abram Hoffer? When, when was that initial interview? It was probably around 2000, 2001, something like that. That's, that's when I really started writing about this stuff, uh, nice. extensively. Yeah. Nice. What was the most interesting thing about him? I'm curious, uh, just recalling from your experience, meeting him he was a very sort of um what should we say um kind of laconic uh individual he was not you know he he sort of he talked very slowly and deliberately and and he was you know there was nothing 
there was nothing wild-eyed or or you know sort of fanatical about him he was like the opposite of timothy leary <laughs> he was you know there was he was there was nothing messianic about him he was very sort of deliberate and um you know he was not out to sort of uh, convert anyone to any particular point of view uh, but he was he he did sort of uh enjoy and and continued to kind of uh, buck the system or fight the system because mm. his his main practice at this at this time you know in around 2000 when i met him in victoria was was uh, he practiced psychiatry and he was still you know he was in his 80s and you know most people would have retired but but he was a controversial psychiatrist because he he practiced uh, what he called orthomolecular medicine and so he was he was basically a vitamin enthusiast and he mm. was convinced that uh vitamin b3 or niacin was a uh, was a sort of successful uh antidote to uh, schizophrenia or or could be used sort of in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat schizophrenia so he had a lot of conflicts with uh conventional psychiatrists which is something that is sort of <laughs> he occurred through his entire life um, but he also had uh, people who were patients uh, of his who really loved him. I mean, in, including um, the actress Margot Kidder. I don't know if you know her. She was Superman, a, right? Yeah, yeah. She was in the first, the very first Superman movie, and um, Canadian actress. But she uh, always sort of suffered from a kind of manic episodes you know, all of her life. And, and she eventually got directed to, uh, Abram Hoffer and, and I interviewed her on the phone, uh, and she thought Abram Hoffer was, was absolutely, uh, a godsend to her. Hmm. And in fact, even I, I had a, took a photograph of, uh, Margot Kidder and Abram Hoffer together, uh, in Vancouver or in Victoria, um, hmm. you know, when she was up here, uh, reading from, uh, uh, the vagina monologues. The, she was sort of oh, on nice. a tour reading from that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the so, play, right? Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I I arranged for Abram Hoffer to go to the performance of the vagina monologues just so I could get a photograph of of the <laughs> oh, two of great. them together afterwards, which was great. Um, so, uh, yeah, he had he had these patients who, and and especially what they uh, loved about him was that he. He was a psychiatrist who still really invested a lot um, of time and sort of uh, attention to people's particular difficulties. And that's mm -hmm. something that was sort of disappearing from psychiatry. I mean, now there's sort of a revival. People are beginning to realize it's like it's not just drug therapy or psychotherapy. You really kind of need both. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but at this particular time in the sort of late nineties around 2000, there really was this sort of belief that like just, uh, the right kind of drugs, you know, there was a, this was not long after listening to Prozac had come out and there was sort of this idea that, you know, the right kinds of antidepressants or whatever would, would solve everything. Mm. It, it was well, really clear that, you know, she, the, the actor that you mentioned, she was very, fond of him and, and and it seemed like his style of care was unconventional for the time you know it, it, it's um the idea of focusing on the person versus the symptoms w would you say that's that's kind of like an attitude that you know 
characterize the way he practiced? Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was uh, what made him unique and and why patients had such affection for him. Hmm. You know, I, 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 I don't even think many of his patients realized that he also had this history in Saskatchewan. You know, he was happy to yeah. talk about it, but it's not it was not something that was sort of, uh, you know, he advertised. So I'm just curious. I mean, it's clear you've interviewed, you know, many interesting figures. Abram Hoffer, very obviously, is central to Canada's history with psychedelics. But it's clear that you've also interviewed others like Frank Ogden uh, at the Hollywood Hospital, Barry Leggett, and um, Ben Metcalf. Can you just talk about some other people that you remember interviewing when you started covering these stories and and what they were like? Was there something similar that you could identify in all of them It's where you could say, oh, yeah, you definitely had a psychedelic uh, experience? <laughs> what were they like? Well, the the... The patients, you know, they they have their own sort of individual stories and and the difficulties, the reasons why they're they they are drawn to or or end up undergoing psychedelic therapy. And they have, you know, in in Barry Leggett's case, he had sort of crippling anxiety. There were other people who uh, you know were alcoholics. There were other people who uh, were depressed. There were you know there was a wide range of of sort of conditions. Um, so they all had you know their own unique stories. But but something that was common to uh, the the therapists or the the doctors who is that they were they were um, uh, you know they they were not uh, afraid of criticism and were willing to sort of stand out or 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 get um get glances askew from from you know the, the medical establishment or or from uh you know their relatives or people like that who mm-hmm. sort of wondered why they were associated with uh psychedelics and and especially sort of later on as they as they became more notorious physicians who were involved in the early psychedelic therapy like Humphrey Osmond and and uh, Abram Hoffer who I mentioned um are were pretty uh straight-laced you know they were not uh mm-hmm. wild-eyed they were they were um curious and and in most cases uh, or nearly all cases, they had had their own experiences with the drugs. And that's one of the things that's kind of unusual uh, about psychedelics is that they are drugs that the physicians or some physicians uh, and the ones who are applying them have taken, uh, that they know personally uh, what the effects are like. And that's that's very different from lots of other psychiatric drugs. There are lots of people who prescribe Prozac who have never taken Prozac. There are lots of people prescribing, you know, olanzapine who have never taken olanzapine, mm. and uh, let alone taken it for you know months or years, which is uh, you know their their patients' conditions. So, um, mm. so they were people who were you know very open minded in the sense that they were willing to sort of undergo some kind of. Uh, you know, personal experimentation uh, to to sort of understand what was going on with these compounds. So, the, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a common feature to uh, the doctors and the therapists. Yeah. This idea of prescribing only uh, something you you have taken yourself and something that you know full well uh, what the range of its effects are. They extended this for nurses. They they kind of Osmond and Hoffer they encouraged 
nurses and other doctors to take the drug themselves to kind of understand what uh, it, it was like to have, you know, a schizophrenic disorder or to kind of, you know, garner empathy and compassion for their patients. It was very um, open time, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s. Of course, there had to be initial research sort of showing that there were uh, or did not appear to be any kind of long-term consequences or, or effects that, you know, the fear, of course, when you take a, a, about any kind of a powerful uh, mind-altering compound is that uh, the change is going to be permanent. And uh, they, uh, you know, had, I, I guess enough doctors and nurses had to sort of see evidence that that was not the case mm. uh, in order to undergo that you know, the experience, experience themselves. Um, uh, but yes, the fact that the people were sort of, uh, open to that, uh, you know, there was no, it's, it's difficult to imagine now, but in the 1950s, you know, there really was this sort of belief that, um, psychopharmacology was going to change everything. Uh, that sort of chemistry generally was this kind of miracle science that would, you know, provide all sorts of new compounds, uh, not just in in uh, pharmacology, but you know, just in industrial sort of science generally. Uh, so, so people were very open to sort of uh, exploring. It was a, a kind of like a, a space race uh, of the mind. And if you were a scientist, you were somebody who sort of had a duty to kind of uh, examine these things and, and to sort of go forward. Well, I mean, looking back at their success for the, the LSD and mescaline experiments in treating alcoholism, you know, when you look in, uh, at Osmond and Hoffer's model, um, one thing that struck me was that it seemed to hinge on the ability of these psychedelics to kind of simulate this rock bottom experience. And I guess maybe the idea was that by, you know, uh, getting people to rock bottom, uh, things can only get better from there. But it seemed like um, the efficacy or the therapeutic success came from really giving them a miserable time. And I think that's interesting because it's very, it's a very different attitude than what we see with psychedelic therapy today. Yeah, well, that's, that is how it it started out that um, Hoffer and Osmond in 1950 Saskatchewan were uh, sort of confronted with the fact that there are these massive numbers of of alcoholics in mental hospitals. There, there, that's sort of where uh, people who suffered from dipsomania, as they called it, uh, ended up going. That there weren't uh, sort of separate, you know, Betty Ford or or specific treatments for alcoholism. Um, everything sort of ended up in the mental hospital, mm. and so uh, it was known. And, you know, had been known for many years, the, the centuries, in fact, the sort of phenomenon of delirium tremens, which is uh, like alcohol withdrawal. If you're someone who's a chronic alcoholic and and you withdraw, for, it's, it's very difficult to withdraw from alcohol, actually. And uh, if you just go cold turkey, that you do experience uh, hallucinations, uh, you know, uh, complete sort of uh, body sweat breakdown. I mean, not much different from withdrawing from heroin. And so they had this idea that uh, this was kind of a necessary step, that you had to sort of go through that, this hell, to realize uh, how desperate your situation was. And because that was sort of a standard treatment for alcoholism. And so this was, the, the idea was, was 
uh, with LSD was, well, maybe we can induce this kind of artificial hell without having all of the physical consequences, the, you know, the fact that people, you know, uh, nearly have a heart attack, you know, undergoing actual delirium tremens, that we can give them a kind of artificial delirium tremens that isn't so uh, hard on their body, but still has the same kind of psychological effect that they sort of have this crisis or the realization of, uh, you know, that they're near death and that they have to turn their life around. And, uh, but then Hubbard came along and said, no, 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 you, you guys, you're doing it all wrong. Uh, you have to give people a beautiful experience. That's going to be more successful. And uh, so they were gradually persuaded to sort of try his methods and realize that uh, he was right. Uh, that, that instead of giving somebody a, a, a traumatic experience, you, should, you could actually move things along even faster by steering them towards where they should be going to a sort of greater spiritual awareness. And uh, yeah, that really sort of changed the, the whole direction uh, and, and really towards where we are today, mm -hmm. um, that you, that you really want to provide, a uh, you know, guide people to heaven rather than down into hell. Yeah. I mean, people do, uh, sometimes on these trips experience hell, uh, but at the same time, you know, ultimately the goal is to sort of, uh, lead people out of that and uh and to a path of enlightenment yeah well even just looking at al hubbard you know we know that he was constantly in contact with osmond and hoffer in saskatchewan and you know he pushes this idea that patients should be having a beautiful experience as opposed to a miserable one and, and we can create the conditions in which that can happen and i guess um was it his idea to incorporate eye shades and 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 music and you know this is as you said this is the modality that's still used for psychedelic therapy today you know, also acknowledging the fact that these drugs have been around for thousands of years, used by indigenous cultures. But Al Hubbard occupies occupies a very kind of special role in this history. Yeah, um, he's uh, and and the most unlikely person to do it. Uh, Al Hubbard was a uh, was born in in uh, Kentucky, uh, you know, in like 1901, I think, and and uh, sort of had like a. A brush cut. He was a like a, a prohibition agent in Seattle, um, and you know was sort of worked with the police a, a lot during his lifetime. But at the same time, he had this sort of mystic uh, side to him, and uh, latched on to to psychedelics and and tuned in and really sort of uh, had a kind of instinct. Uh, an instinct about how they should be used. Um, one thing that, that a lot of people sort of wonder about, and we don't really know because he never wrote a, a biography and, um, and because he traveled around a lot, he was very secretive. You know, this is part of the reason why we don't know so much about him is because he was, he was good at covering his tracks. Um, is we don't really know how much he knew about, these sort of indigenous traditions. I mean, he must have known something about them because he, he certainly was reading about them and paying attention to what kinds of compounds uh, or, or, or uh, psychedelics were being used in other cultures. So, you know, it's, 
it's uh, quite possible that he he read about what was being used in in um, uh, you know mushroom ceremonies or ayahuasca ceremonies and sort of thought well maybe we can incorporate some of this you know like the music that's that's used in uh, ayahuasca ceremonies or versions of them um, to sort of help guide people along the route mm-hmm. but it did you know his his technique sort of evolved over uh, over you know, a, a, a decade really sort of through the, the course of the entire 1950s. So I, I think he sort of picked up uh, bits and pieces along the way, you know, met people who were musicians. He had, um, uh, if, if you sort of look at the accounts of his, of his early sessions with LSD, he would have, you know, there would be a whole bunch of people in the room you know, someone who's, who's operating the music and somebody who's, who's also sort of getting coffee and, and people are coming and going and it's, it's, it's far more sort of, uh, busy and, and chaotic than, you know, you would see in a session now, uh, where you, you just basically have the, the, the two, just a therapist in the room or two therapists in the room. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 and one male and one female That's right. uh, is often the case, or or both female. You certainly wouldn't have, you know, what he had at the time, you know, everybody because he had to have physicians present and most doctors were men. Um, you know, there would be nurses. No, no one spilling coffee over you yeah. when you're at the peak of your journey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it eventually became, but he did, it, it's, it, it is accurate to say that he was sort of the, the earliest adopter of a lot of this stuff to try to bring in the eye shades and the music and to sort of synthesize, uh, the, the elements of, uh, sort of first nation psychedelic experience, uh, with these modern, um, compounds. So yeah, he's, he's, uh, an essential character. Um, but like I said, he's just, he's not that well known because he, he was more interested in sort of slipping back and forth between all of these different, uh, scenes. He was, he was based in Vancouver, but he was, he was, uh, he would be down in California talking to the sort of Silicon Valley people. He would be in Saskatchewan. He would be, uh, off in Washington, DC. He'd be traveling around the world. He, he, um, he was a nomadic psychonaut. Yes, exactly. And so he didn't, he didn't want to be known. He, and, and he did such a, a good job of sort of covering his, his tracks and his past that really there was a whole, he was a, uh, a fairly notorious figure in Seattle in the 1920s and thirties, uh, during prohibition because he was involved in some big, uh, liquor busts and stuff like that. Hmm. So, but, but even the, the doctors who hung around with him didn't really know that about, about him. So he, he was very good at sort of um, keeping his cards close to his chest, as you would say. Yeah, I, I guess he. The, it seems that he was a, a decently enigmatic guy, but also fairly charismatic. I mean, I think he was a devout Catholic that you you might have mentioned, and I think he garnered a lot of support in the Catholic Church in Vancouver. I think there was a church. Uh, pe- people were writing kind of letters or testimonies. Yeah, he 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 was a he was raised a devout Catholic and. Uh, he, I think he, he liked the, the ceremonial aspects of the Catholic church. Uh, he, um, uh, incorporated into his therapy. Often you would get, 
uh, LSD uh, in uh, uh, liquid form and added to water. And so you would just drink it. Hmm. And so he would often serve that in a, in a chalice, like you were, you know, you were at a, in a cathedral hmm. sort of receiving, yeah. he had like a special, like the Eucharist. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and he also, um, you know, would have, uh, paintings of Salvador Dali that incorporated, uh, you know, sort of Christian iconography. Um, but of course, <laughs> it's a very mm. sort of a different vision of, of, uh, of, uh, Christian traditions. But anyway, they were very, you know, modern, but still, um, very Catholic influenced. And, um, so that, that was sort of, yeah, part of, of what he was advancing this sort of idea of, kind of spiritual conversion that you would, um, I think he also liked the sort of confessional aspect, uh, of LSD therapy. It was very common at Hollywood hospital, especially for the patients to, before they underwent the therapy to sort of write out a huge amount of biographical information that they would sort of explain everything about, uh, their, their family, their upbringing, what their problem was, why they were there, uh, what they hoped to achieve. And these would be, uh, used as reference by the physicians, but I, but there was also a sort of confessional element to it that people had to kind of address, uh, their problems. And I think he believed, you know, that this was an aspect of, of Catholic practice that was actually useful in, mm. in, um, psychedelic psychotherapy. Mm. So, uh, yeah, he, he persuaded, uh, uh, Monsignor, uh, John Edward Brown, who was a, a prominent and uh, charismatic figure in the Vancouver archdiocese to write a sort of reference letter, hmm. which was a, a introduction to the LSD experience, uh, which was, it was just a one page letter that I think could be sort of given to anybody who kind of questioned whether it was a good idea or not. He said here, well, we've got a, you know, seal of stamp of approval from, uh, the local archdiocese. So, uh, you know, if, if you're skeptical or, or, uh, uh, you know, you think there's something controversial about what we're doing, you know, here's to let you know that the Catholic church approves. So, because there were, even in the 1950s when LSD was legal, there still were doctors, uh, and lots of doctors who disapproved of it, um, mm. uh, because they, uh, they thought it was, um, uh, well, they had all sorts of reasons why they were opposed to it, that it was, it was too, interactive with the patient or the the idea that you would combine psychoanalysis or psychotherapy with drugs does not if if you're someone who's a pure psychotherapist you don't like the idea and if you're someone who who is a uh you know purely believes in in psychopharmacology you don't like the idea um so yeah there 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 were opponents ross it's really been a pleasure talking to you thank you for being on the show today you're very welcome we hope you enjoyed this discussion with our good friend, Ross Crockford. Be sure to look out for our next episode featuring our conversation with Canadian historian, Dr. Erica Dick, where we further discuss the history of psychedelics in Canada, as well as the role of women in psychedelic psychiatry. We'll even talk about our upcoming book on the global history of psychedelics. Thanks for tuning in to the MAPS Canada podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your network. Maps Canada is a registered nonprofit charity. We rely entirely on the generosity of our supporters to fund our projects and research. You can support us by becoming a monthly donor or by making a one-time tax-deductible donation at mapscanada.org/donate. Or, if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved in our work, please visit our website at mapscanada.org. As always, this podcast is brought to you by our team of dedicated volunteers, and we appreciate your support. It goes a long way in our efforts towards the legalization of psychedelics and ensuring their access as safe medicines for all Canadians. This episode was produced and edited by Brendan Campbell. Original music and audio engineering by Andrew Illman. I'm Siddharth Rankadwa, and thanks for listening.